All right, welcome into episode 57 of the Natural Hattrick Podcast. Alongside Craig Morgan, I'm Luke Lipinski. Jamie Eisner out today. He'll be back next week. Craig, for some reason, I'm wearing headphones. I don't need these, so I'm going to take them off. All right, I'll watch. All right, how was that? They're pretty well executed. Yeah. You could barely even hear it. Quietly, if, I, yes. if I hadn't mentioned it directly into the microphone, nobody would have ever known. So we've uh, we've got some stuff to talk about today, and we're going to be joined later on in the show by uh, Mark Lazarus of the Chicago Sun Times to talk about the Blackhawks and there's something else going on in Chicago, isn't there? Cubbies. And then uh, Lisa Dillman of the LA Times is going to come on and talk about the Kings. So we'll save most of the Kings talk for her, but I will just mention. They haven't won a game in regulation yet, and they've been shut out three straight games. And last night against Anaheim was a bloodbath. Not in that they got blown out, although I guess they kind of did, ultimately. It was just fight after fight. It was like watching Slapshot 3. <laughs> and Jonathan Quick is clearly not the only issue facing that team right now. No, he can't score goals for them. So we'll get more into L.A. Uh, later on. But we, we've got a lot of different areas. Where do you want to start here? We, I guess we should start with uh, the biggest story to ever hit hockey, Connor McDavid against Austin Matthews, Toronto-Edmonton. I'm not sure on, was that now, Tuesday night, anybody north of the border knew there were other games going on south of the border because it was McDavid against Matthews. And it was a decent game. They didn't do anything, but it was a decent game. Should have been on national television in the U.S. Are we agreed here? I I do agree with that. I mean, I know it's two Canadian teams, but... It's an American player and a generational... They're both generational players. They're both generational players. And this is, I mean, maybe, you know, I know the NHL forces its rivalries a little bit, but this could be a good one. You know, I, both these teams obviously have a lot of progress to make still. They've both been near the bottom of the standings, but these are the two guys that give them hope. They give Canada hope. These are two markets. Toronto's the hockey capital of the world, in my mind, and Edmonton with the success it had so long ago with the greatest player to ever play the game. They're really good storylines here. I don't know how I feel about this. Canada has hope. The Cubs are... I think going to win the World Series tonight. By the time people hear this, they're going to know. Locust tomorrow. Yeah. So I mean, I don't know what to believe anymore. But you know, I think I think you hit on a kind of an interesting topic there. Connor McDavid, Jack Eichel, Austin Matthews, Patrick Laine. Um, certainly, McDavid and Matthews are generational talents. Eichel might be right there, and I think Laine. I'm in that camp that he's going to be once he gets going. Maybe not this year. A perennial 30 to 35 goal scorer. What are the rivalries there? Because my, my, my initial <laughs> thought was, yeah, McDavid Matthews, they see each other twice a year. I thought we were playing Jeopardy for a moment. I we, who are four players the Arizona Coyotes did not draft? Okay. <laughs> who are four players that have never been in my arena? <laughs> well, I mean, you, you look at Matthews and Eichel, that's a, a natural rivalry given the proximity of Buffalo and Toronto. Yeah. So that, that's got to be one as well. But beyond that, I don't know. I, they just they that, don't play each other. Yeah, ever. that's the thing. It's just it's, it'll, be, it'll feel a little forced, but... You know, if Toronto and Edmonton take the steps that some oh, people see them possibly taking, they could meet in the in the biggest of all series. <laughs> the, wow, are we getting ahead of ourselves the listeners here? Putting the Oilers and the Maple Leafs in the Stanley Cup final. The listeners couldn't see your uh, your your full body gestures to sort of illustrate the uh, the moment there, but it was it was it was beautiful. It was like a it's like a choreographed like circle. It really was. It was like your assessment of the Pacific Division a week or two ago, where everybody's going to go all the way up and uh, do, just do a full it three sixty. Like hot water and cold water, and then I lost it. I, yeah. I think I lost everyone actually. It, yeah, well, it's not the first time on this show. <laughs> so yeah, Toronto and, and Edmonton. That was a fun game to watch. Uh, I'm sorry if you don't have the hockey package in the U.S., you weren't able to watch it. You're right. That that's an oversight. Neither one of them scored. Nazem Kadri actually decided that game. He's been quietly very good for Toronto this year. Now that I. I I'm interested to get your theory on this. 
Craig, because he is kind of he's always been a little bit more of a two way player, or at least that's what they've wanted from him. He's got five goals now. He basically stole the puck from Connor McDavid and scored the game winner in overtime on Tuesday. Some controversy is if there should have been a penalty there or not. There's always going to be controversy when Toronto plays another Canadian team, I think. But um, my theory with him is that the pressure's not really on him anymore. He was a high pick, and all the focus is on him. Nobody's talking about Nazem Kadri anymore. Not only that, when you have a player of, of Matthews' ability, it's going to create opportunities for everybody else in the lineup, right? Whether it's his line mates that have more space to operate or the guys that play below him because teams are more focused on stopping Austin Matthews. That, that, that's how I see this playing out. If we see a rise in points in production for, for Kadri, it's, it's probably going to be related to that. But, you know, he's, he's got, clearly he's got some skill in his own right. And this could just, he could just be a nice piece fitting into this puzzle now that they have the critical piece, the franchise center that teams need, as I've stated a thousand times, to win a Stanley Cup. Boy, you you have you have stated that a thousand times, but how how apparent is that right mm-hmm. now? Like, how much of a jolt has it been to Toronto, who was kind of a, a laughing stock for a while there? And look, they're not winning games right now; they're three, four, and three. But they're they're entertaining, and they're clearly on the way up. Edmonton leads the Pacific Division, and I'm not sure it's a fluke. I don't know that they're going to win the Pacific, but I think that's a playoff team at this point, as long as McDavid stays healthy. Line is such a jolt for Winnipeg, and obviously, unfortunately, Jack Eichel's not helping Buffalo right now, but we already saw what he can do last year. Yeah. It's, it, is, it is crazy. It, I know this is going to sound homerish coming from Arizona because the Coyotes were, they were right at the bottom of the standings each of those two years when all those players were available in the drafts. But, and, and I'm not, this is not a conspiracy theory, but I kind of, part of me wishes one of those four players would have ended up somewhere in a non-traditional market. I mean, it's, it's Winnipeg, Buffalo, Toronto, Edmonton. They're basically all in Canada. Even if it was just one of them ends up in Carolina or in Florida and Tampa probably don't need them, but just somebody. And it has such all an impact, there. right? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's the kind of player that you look for in a non-traditional market to sell the product. You need that kind of, really, a generational talent, as we're talking about, at least with, you know, with Matthews and with... Uh, McDavid. Yeah, another guy, Connor yeah. McDavid. Yeah. <laughs> You'll remember his name. Yeah, just it'll, it'll come to me. Yeah. No, I, you, you, I, you, me, Jamie talked about for a while there where Austin Matthews would fit best if he if he wasn't going to come home and be in, in Phoenix. And I, I'm completely on board. I think Toronto is the best place for him if he's not going to be on the Coyotes. But I really think the best place for McDavid was a completely non-traditional market. And quite honestly, he probably should be on the Coyotes. But even if he wasn't, like I said, somewhere in the southeast, because I think – he is he's going to attract so much attention no matter where he goes that instantly he puts whatever team he lands on on the map. Edmonton didn't need that. You know, I wrote a, a column earlier this uh, fall about timing with the Coyotes. You know, the, the new arena we assume is coming. Their young pool of prospects is rising. So in the next few years, there's, there's sort of this nexus of things happening here. Imagine if Connor McDavid were on board with all of this right now. And then when you look at the sports landscape, in the Valley right oh, now, boy. which, as I also mentioned in the call yeah. just yesterday, is an absolute dumpster fire right yeah. now. Yeah, This guy, could he, he could just spark interest in this team. So it is a shame. Now, they have some other guys, clearly, that, that can spark interest as well. But, again, that franchise setter just changes the complexion of a team. There's just there's no way, and I, I will try not to bring this up ever again, but there's no way for a Coyotes fan to not think, hey, wait a minute. 
What if we had a line down the down, a couple of years from now of Max Domi, Anthony Duclair, and Connor McDavid? Because it's not like you would have lost Duclair or Domi if you won that lottery and got McDavid. So the speed alone, right? Can you imagine? I don't the speed know how you that stop one? that line. I don't either. I don't either. McDavid makes Domi better. I think Domi makes McDavid better, and Duclair's a finisher when the puck's around the net. I mean, that would have been what would have been. Yeah. Anyway, so moving on from that, um, sniff <laughs> the. Uh, we're at that point of the season where you're starting to see guys that are highly touted prospects get sent back to junior. Mikhail Sergachev uh, of Montreal sent back down to Windsor. Generally, what you see for a defensive player that's trying to step in as an 18-year-old, not going to be the case with the Coyotes. Jacob Chikrin, I'm sure you've been asked this numerous times as well. A lot of people that aren't seeing him play are still asking me, hey, you know, are they going to send down Dylan Strom or Lawson Krause or Jacob Chikrin? Jacob Chikrin doesn't need to be in that group. He's here to stay. He is... He's an NHL player. Uh, he's impressed them so much that they've moved him, moved him up into their second pairing right now. He's yeah. playing with Connor Murphy. <sighs> Again, there, there are a lot of things to watch here, right? It, he, he's only one game away now, I believe, from that yeah. magical nine-game yeah. nine mark. Um, a couple things to, to point out here. Now, uh, as somebody mentioned to me yesterday, the 40-game mark is where you lose a year of free agency, so we'll, we'll keep an eye on that as well. But you also have to remember he's a young player. He's, he started off fast at some point. Rookies generally hit a wall. Oh, yeah. What's going to happen down the road? How will that impact their evaluation of him? You know, I think he's going to get past the nine-game mark. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how he doesn't at this point. But do they change their minds down the road? Can he sustain this? It's really hard to do, especially at that position, Luke. Being a young defenseman in the NHL is a really difficult, I might argue, the most difficult thing to do. I, I would agree, and I'm sure I've said this on the show before, but if you have a child that wants to play in the NHL someday, it's... Uh, <laughs> Not likely, but if you want the easiest path, make them into a good defenseman because there's just such a shortage of them in the NHL and also make them right-handed if they're going to play defense. And pump them with drugs so they're at least like 6'4", right? <laughs> I didn't say that. <laughs> no, you didn't. No, but, you know, it's with, with Chikrin specifically, Dave Tippett said this at practice yesterday. He wasn't even talking about Chikrin. He was actually talking about Christian Dvorak, but it, it, it just in a broader sense, he said, Quite simply, people want to read so much into guys getting sent down. And he was talking about Dvorak and how Dvorak doesn't have to go to junior so they can bounce him up and down from Tucson. That's not a bad thing, as Dave Tippett said yesterday. That's part of the process for a young player. But he also said, if you make it easier on your coach to win games, if you make your team better, no coach, no matter what the scenario is, is not going to play you. Jacob Chikrin then, last night, in a win over the San Jose Sharks, mind you, played 23 and a half minutes. Mm-hmm. The only guys on the ice for either team that played more than Jacob Chikrin last night were Oliver ekman Larson, who I think is one of the four or five best defensemen in the world, and he played like 16 more seconds. Alex Goligoski, which was sort of out of necessity, and Brent Burns, who is also one of the four or five best defensemen in the world. So for Jacob Chikrin to already be making that impact, he's not going anywhere. But to your point, you, you play a full season of NHL hockey, those guys lose a lot of weight just over the course of the season when you are 18, 19, 20 year, years old. And so, you know, Chikrin's in a position where he has to be physical. He doesn't have to be Shea Weber out there, but he does have to play physical defense in the NHL. Sure, he does. And those are areas to watch. Those, those are areas they'll keep tweaking, but you see the offensive instincts and the ability to jump up into the play. Those are the things, again, that's where the league's going. And he, yep. he just seems to have some innate hockey sense in those areas that the Coyotes have been lacking other than Oliver ekman Larson, You know, they've got Goligoski now as well, but when you look for uh, transformation of your blue line, those are the types of players you want, and he's showing great promise right now. 
Anybody else around the league you're looking at specifically? I wrote a piece on Matthew Kachuk, and he has now played nine games. I kind of think the Flames are going to keep him, but just in, just in writing that piece and kind of looking at some stuff and talking to some people, you, you get a sense of what teams have to weigh because, you know, do you want to send a guy back to junior when there's nothing else for him to accomplish in junior? But at the same time, do you want to play him 10 minutes a night as Kachuk basically is in Calgary right now? He's been effective, but he's playing 10 minutes a night on the third line. Maybe that goes up, but there's nothing left for him to do in London, and that's yeah. it's not the only example of that. No, Dylan Strom is a great example of that. Yeah. Dave Tibbet brought it up. Is, you know, when we talk about the, uh, the CHL-NHL agreement for junior-eligible players, and there may be some discussion here soon about altering that, get it, you know, having some exceptions, because Dylan Strom's played four years of junior. Dave Tibbet is of the mind that, he really can't gain anything from going no. back there, but he can't go to the AHL, at least not till the junior season is over. So it's a bad situation. You're not allowing the player really to develop anymore. They'd like to have him in the lineup more, and they're, they're going to try and do that, obviously, with sending Christian Dvorak down to the AHL for, for this time period, however long that lasts. But ideally, Strom would get some time in the AHL right now. That's probably where he is in his development, and it's not an option for the Coyotes. So... I really look to see what the conversation looks like going forward with that agreement because I understand the benefits for both sides. You know, the, the CHL gets great players to sell their product. The NHL, by and large, gets free development for their young players. Yeah. They don't have to pay for that stuff. It's like a, a minor league system without much cash. I know there's a fee that they paid, Dave Tippett said the other day, but it's not like paying entry-level salaries. But still, when you look at what's best for the development of players, there, there seems I think we need some tweaks to that agreement. Yeah, the best idea I've heard, and maybe there will be even better ones coming up, but the best idea I've heard is just give each team one exception. That seems like the simplest thing, and I, and I get that when, when you propose a simple solution to something like that, it's usually mysteriously frowned upon. Like college football, how long did it take them to realize <laughs> you need a four-team playoff as opposed to just voting on who wins at the end of each year? But the, the, the one-player exception for each team I think makes the most sense because at that point you're not just – completely destroying the CHL and taking all their stars. Well, maybe, right? I mean, the CHL might argue, well, if you're one, one player from each team, we're talking about the top prospect from each team, maybe, in a lot of cases, so you're robbing yeah. the league of a lot of talent. So it's it's going to be interesting to watch those negotiations. I hear what you're saying, and I, I sort of think that's the way it should be, but do there you, will be some pushback there. Do you think every team would necessarily use it on their best prospect? No, probably though? not, but a lot of them probably would. They would. I, yeah, I don't know. I just They need to come up with something because you said it, and I think the biggest thing is you're hurting a player's development in certain cases. Not, I mean, not all of them, but look, with if, if, if the Coyotes want Dylan Strome in the AHL, let's just use him as the example, well, they're not sending him to the CHL because, as you said, he just hit 240 points over the last two years. There's nothing left for Dylan Strome to do. At, at this point, it's probably almost better for him to play every other night with the Coyotes, every other game, I should say, work out with the team in practice as opposed to just dominating in Erie again. So at that point, the OHL isn't getting Dylan Strome anyway. So why, why hamper his development? What, yeah. what, what are you proving at that's, that point? That's well argued, actually. That's the, that's the way to frame the argument, I think. Um, yeah, and it's, it, it's a shame because I, I, I do think the Coyotes are at that point where they think, yeah, it's probably it, it's not the best option, but it's probably better for him to stay here, work with our development staff, and you know we get him in and out of the lineup rather than going back to juniors where he's going to play like two-and-a-half-minute shifts, to develop bad defensive habits again, yeah. not have to do the things that you need to do to be successful in the NHL. And, you know, for we're just using Strom as the example. He's 19 years old. He was just drafted. It's, he doesn't have to step oh, in and, tw- and score 30 goals this season. And he's now played four games because he's been bouncing in and out, which I'm sure is tough to play a game and then have to sit for three games 
when it's your first game. I mean, but the Coyotes, and, and they're not the only team. They're just the one that we're looking at, and they are a pretty extreme example because they have so many rookies. It's, it's just it's one of those situations where it, it really it's a challenge for the coach and for the front office, and the reason we're bringing it up now is because a lot of these players are getting right up to nine games. The other thing I will throw out there, because this does seem to be a point of confusion for a lot of people that just casually follow hockey, it's not nine team games. It's how many games that player yes. has actually played. Dylan Strom has played four games. He's still got five more games he actually plays in before the Coyotes have to decide. And take that across the league, too. Like Matthew Kachuk had, had missed a game, and Jacob Chikrin had missed a game. So there's, it's not just nine games into the season. And to clarify, another thing that I, I always hear misunderstood is once you get past that nine games and he becomes, you know, you're burning the first level, no, he cannot go to the AHL at that point. That would just be a, an easy workaround for NHL teams yeah. to do that. That's that possibility does not exist until the junior season ends. That is when a junior eligible player can go to the AHL and play. Yeah, and they might come in for three games at the end right, of the year. Exactly. It's yeah. very tail end of the season. You're not getting a ton out of that. All right, uh, where else do we want to go here? We want Wayne Simmons. I noticed you sent me a note about Wayne Simmons. This guy consistently puts up 25 goals a season. I'm just, you know, when I was looking at, and I know we're going to talk with Mark Lazarus about one of the people on this list, but when I, when I look at some of the stats leaders around the NHL, Wayne Simmons is one of those guys. He's third overall in goals and points in the league right now. This is a guy who I've always appreciated as a player, but he's, I think he's one of those guys that just rolls under the radar all the time. He really brings it in all elements of the game. He's a physical player too, but he's a producer in terms of points. I, I think that's actually, the, the physicality is why he sort of gets lost in the shuffle in terms of, of being a goal scorer and a point producer. And I'm trying to pull up his... His totals. I want to say it's from about 2000, the 2011-12 season. He's definitely top 20 in, in the NHL in terms of total points. And he's right up there in goals, can, just consistently, 25, 26, 27, 28 goals. And if you think about it, there's not a lot of players that consistently do that around the league. Unless you're talking about the truly elite talent, you start to talk about guys, oh, yeah, this guy had 32 goals, and then the next year he had 17. By the way, he's making less than $4 million a season. He's a fantastic bargain, too. He's got three more years left on this deal at 3.975. That's a, that's a fantastic salary for a player of this caliber. He is, what, okay, so 138 goals since the 2012 season, so I may need to adjust this, uh, this search. But either way, he's, you're right. I mean, you, you want to talk about bargains. And another reason Philadelphia should be better than they are, <laughs> they've got Claude Giroux, who picks up at least an assist every single night. Jacob Voracek is a, is a solid point producer. Shane Gostaspare is one of the best young defensemen in the league, and then they have arguably uh, the best bargain maybe in the league. That would be an interesting story to kind of research, but he's certainly he's up there. For whatever reason, Philadelphia seems to just kind of be an average team with, with above-average talent. So, Yeah, like, like I said, the, the other guy on the list uh, in, in terms of scores is Artem Anissimo. We'll, we'll talk about his rise. He's, he's your NHL goals co-leader and leads the NHL in points right now. But on the flip side of it, in goal, the guy who has the best save percentage in goals against average in the league right now is a guy we both thought was going to be a backup when the season started. Detroit's Jimmy Howard. Yeah. He has a 9.73 save percentage and a 0.86 goals against average. It's just four games. It's a tiny sample size. But Jimmy Howard was an elite goalie at one point in this league. The craziest part of this story for me is he's remade his game. He's not playing the aggressive style that he played earlier. He's sitting back, letting pucks come to him, getting better reads off the sticks, and yet here he is having success. 
Because, you know, that happens all the time that players completely remake their game as a pro. Yeah, especially at the goaltending position where if you have any weakness, it's instantly exposed and broadcast to millions of people on a nightly basis. Uh, But I give him credit for, you know, there was a a stretch where he was Detroit's next goalie and he was the starter and he was paid as such. And it's got to be tough to then. And he had some bad years, so it's, it's on him. But then to see Peter Mrazek step in, and it's your teammate, and you're rooting for your team because those are your your guys that you hang out with and you spend eight months of the year basically constantly with. You're not rooting against your teammates, but you expected to be that guy. I give him credit for being willing to change his style, which is, like you said, unheard of for a goalie. Real quick, just going back to your Wayne Simmons point, he's 14th in the NHL in total goals since the 2000, since the start of the 2011-12 season. Mm. And to put it in perspective, he's got 138. The guys that are around him, Rick Nash is one ahead of him. And remember, Rick Nash used to be a lot better. But does, he, does he make $80 million a year? Yes. <laughs> Just by saying his name, we owe him money. Uh, Evgeny Malkin has four more goals than him. Phil Kessel has 10 more. Jamie Benn has 12 more. Here's one for you. Patrick Kane has 13 more goals than Wayne Simmons over the last basically five and a half seasons. Yeah, he makes more than $10 million a year. It's well, just, yeah. He's Patrick Kane does special things, yeah. obviously. But Wayne Simmons is underpaid. He is a fantastic under-talked about. I know mm-hmm. that's not the way to phrase it. More goals than Sidney Crosby. Now, granted, Crosby missed a lot of games. But still, I mean, you're talking about when just having your name in that conversation. You're right. And I've had this talk with people before, and they're like, wait, who is Wayne Simmons? He's your, He scores goals. He does other things, but he scores goals. Uh, yeah, Jimmy Howard is... Look, if Detroit's going to keep that playoff streak alive, they need a goalie to really kind of just take over. And like you said, it's early. I, I don't expect Jimmy Howard to put up Vezina-worthy numbers and become the starter, but he may become the starter. That's worth keeping an eye on. It absolutely is, yeah. And it, it's, it's a good problem to have when you have a goaltending competition, right? It's, it's never a bad thing when you have two guys playing well. Well, Peter Mrazek right now is not playing well, but good to have Jimmy Howard stepping back up. And good guy, too, actually, who trains a lot in the Valley in the offseason, so we see him around. Uh, nice to see him back on his game. If you could make an all-star team of the players that train around the Valley, the Coyotes win Stanley Cup every single year. Massive roster to choose from. Uh, Also, probably the Red Wings wouldn't be that upset if Jimmy Howard retook over as the starter because they're paying him $5.3 million a year for the next three years. So it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. Peter Mrazek is signed through the end of next season at $4 million a year. So just something to keep an eye on uh, there. Jacob Truba, Mm. still unsigned. Um, Hampus Lindholm got signed, I believe. 29 days? 29 days left, yeah. Yeah. Lindholm, Lindholm got signed after last week's show. Yeah. And he's not playing yet, but he's obviously signed with Anaheim. So Jacob Troop is the last RFA. I have no idea how this plays out. I really don't. Neither side's blinking right now. And, and maybe they won't until the last week before. But why? What's the point so, of that? I don't know. Because both sides are hurting themselves right now. Yes. Both sides are hurting themselves. Winnipeg clearly needs him in the lineup. Well, why wouldn't you need a, a potential top-pairing right-handed defenseman in your lineup? Of course you do. But he wants, uh, it, well, I, I don't even want to go into what his agent's saying because I have no idea whether that's just spin or, but man, this has to get saltier soon. Is he going to get traded? I don't know. If he gets traded, it's going to just create massive shockwaves across the NHL two months into the season. It's yeah. gonna, it's, it potentially could change the picture depending on where he goes. So what are the options here? He, he re-signs with Winnipeg, and everybody pretends that he never wanted to be traded and everything was right. fine all along. They all say it's all good, and yeah, no, it's just business, and, and there's no hard feelings. Blah, blah, blah. Right. But I, I may have cost my team a shot at the playoffs because, oh, by the way, I missed two months in the Central Division where even when Patrick Laine and Mark Scheifele score every night, they're not in a playoff spot but still right buy now. my jersey fans, please. Yes, please. Or he doesn't sign, and, and he just... 
I'm withers. Yeah, like <laughs> it's just I can't I can't envision that happening for a player of this caliber. But yeah, it's a possibility. He sacrifices a year of his career. The Jets for what? The Jets sacrifice a playoff spot if they still I mean, have his rights. It's, yeah, it's not changing anything. No, so. yeah. <laughs> or he gets traded. You're right. Yeah. And if he gets traded, I would assume he doesn't go anywhere in the Central. He probably doesn't go anywhere in the Pacific, or if they have another option. I discount that option. I think that, that's an option. That, I, yeah, I should reword that. I think teams in the Pacific are an option, but if a team from the Pacific and the Islanders make the same offer, they're going right. to offer the Islanders. Yeah. Maple Leafs, teams like that, sure, you yeah. want to get them on a conference, so you see them as little as possible. But, uh, but, but you're right. down to the return more than anything. Yeah, the return will be what determines this, if, if they go that route. Or, you know, of course, he could play in the KHL, which isn't happening. It's always a threat. By agents, and rarely, rarely do I believe them. <laughs> if the player wasn't born in Russia. Yeah, I mean, if, if Jacob Truba doesn't have anything to prove in the KHL, he doesn't have a home in the KHL, it's not like he grew up watching the KHL. Like, he wanted to play in the NHL. He can. He can be a potentially, what? I mean, what's the ceiling? A potentially elite defenseman in this league a couple Absolutely. years down the line. Winnipeg needs him. He needs to play. And here we are. December 1st is the day where that's just it, basically. Yeah. It's it's mind boggling. Should we use that to transition into the uh, the central division, or do well, we? Well, let's 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 drop a promo for set okay. first. Our, our, our good friend, friend of the family, Sebastian Norm. I, I don't even know how to intro this because I don't I don't know what Sebastian is going to create for us. The uh, yeah, I don't know how to tease it without giving too much away. Also, because we don't know exactly. Well, we sort of know how the intro is going to sound on a week to week basis, right? Well, and now it's time. Or Swedish things with Sebastian Norin. Maybe some music in the background, but yes, some, definitely some. Music. You will definitely be some, voicing something it. Swedish. Yeah. I don't know what that is. It's, it's, it's like a reindeer running around in the back. I don't know what that is. <laughs> I don't know either. Um, Sebastian is the most Swedish person I know, and I cover NHL teams. <laughs> but uh, yeah, he um, he hosts a Swedish podcast. He works for today's Slapshot, uh, Swedish hockey podcast. I will say, I went on his show last week, and it was just on for ten minutes or whatever, and they did it in English. But he introed in Swedish, and I had like twelve panic attacks. Did you miss your cue then? Yes. I was like, wait, does he expect me to do this in Swedish? Um, but he knows his hockey. He wants to come on the show. So at some point here soon, once once we kind of get everybody back in the studio, we're going to have him on. Uh, and he's got great insight around not just European players, but just the NHL in general. He used to live here. He now uh, lives on the other side of the country. But And then after that, we are going to have him come on and do some sort of Swedish bit every, every week or every other week just for like... Oh, 30 seconds. We'll see. Yeah, he's just got an artistic license, so we'll see how that turns out. I also want to, uh, before we'll have, we'll talk to Mark Lazarus before we get into the uh, the Central Division, but I should point out, the Vancouver Canucks haven't won a game since the last time we said that they weren't going to win a whole lot of games this season. <laughs> That's predictable. I mean, this yeah. is the easiest regression to see coming in the NHL, wasn't it? Probably in the history of sports. Uh, <laughs> that, that team is, I, I rarely say this about a team because I don't, I hate attacking fan bases. That's Jamie's thing, you know, and I don't want to steal his bit. Did they blow their chance at the rebuild uh, like a couple years ago? I, again, I talked to TSN analyst Ray Ferraro about this, and he, he was saying, you know, when they when they brought in Ryan Mill, when they brought in Redeem Verbata, that was sort of the time period where they should have said, okay, let's start the rebuild with the Sedin still in the fold. We can still start this with them in the fold. But now as, you know, we're, we're nearing the end of the Sedin era, there's, there's very little wiggle room. They... As he said, they're they're not enough of anything right now, so they're not going to make any headway. You you can't move the Sedins. That's like what what, what is that cap space? Because they got to go together. Yeah. You're not going to move them both. You don't have a lot of wiggle room. You brought in Louis Erickson. You, you've got not enough veteran presence to actually do more than maybe hang around the playoff picture. I don't even think they're going to do that. 
but you also aren't finishing seasons low enough where you're drafting the players, getting the prospects into your system where you become good enough, you know, down the road. You, yeah. Where you're starting that rebuild. It's almost like you've just put it off. Maybe there's pressure in that market. It's it's a significant hockey market to produce a playoff team, but did you really think the fan base cares? Hey, we made, we made the playoffs and lost in the first round. Wasn't that great? Yeah, I, you know, it's it's very similar to what Calgary was doing a few years ago when, when Jay Feaster was the GM, and it's not a knock on him. I think there was a lot of pressure from above him and also from the fan base there. You can't trade Jerome Ginla. Well, let's keep this team together, and we'll, we'll, we'll right the ship. We were just in the Stanley Cup final in 2004 or whatever it was, and they prolonged their rebuild, and then they finally were like, we got to move Ginla, and we got to start over. And it, it's, it's working for them. I know they got blown out last night, and they're scuffling a little bit, but I think ultimately you have to do that. I think the fans there embraced it. Vancouver fans are a little bit different. They are, uh, they they are aggressive. I will. I went to a lot of games in Vancouver growing up. But um, yeah, I think at a certain point they don't want to just be hanging around trying to get in as the eighth seed. I will say this though, and we touched on this a little bit a week or two ago. They finished with the third worst record in the NHL last year, and they didn't get Austin Matthews or Patrick Laine. So it's not. And I've had this conversation with fans here too. Why why don't you just lose on purpose and bottom out, and then you'll get the best player. There's not a generational talent every year, and when there is, Edmonton gets them. So, and I mean, you know, Vancouver had the third worst record, and they ended up picking fifth this year. So they didn't, not only did they not get Austin Matthews or Patrick Laine or Pugliarvi, or, I mean, they passed on Kachuk, so that's on them. But at that point, Kachuk's not Austin Matthews. So it's not like they got their instant piece. They got Ole Ulevi, who's playing junior hockey, and that's fine. So in that regard, I guess the, the devil's advocate for Vancouver would say, well, they did bottom out a little bit, and they didn't get rewarded for it. So we'll see. Yeah, but you just you can't do it one year and say, okay, hey, it's all good now. We're gonna we're gonna build it back up. I just I don't get what they're doing. I just it seems like they're stuck in neutral right now. Well, and I think the thing to point to is going out and throwing all that money at Louis Erickson, who's yeah. a really good player, but he's not helping you rebuild. Uh, he's not helping you get to the playoffs, in my opinion. And now you can't trade Ryan Miller really either because so yeah, they. they I think the bigger issue with Vancouver is they had things they could have moved and they waited too long to move them, and now they really can't. All right, let's, uh, let's, the Chicago Blackhawks are a huge story around the NHL because they are 4-1 and one in their last five, and they can't kill off a penalty, but they're not even the biggest story in their own city. So we're going to talk to Mark Lazarus of the Chicago Sun-Times right now. All right, from time to time, we like to bring in guests to provide a little insight on teams, players, the league, etc., other issues. Right now, we are joined by Mark Lazarus from the Chicago Sun-Times, uh, you can find him on Twitter, at Mark Lazarus, but not spelled like the biblical figure who rose from the dead. And, Mark, that is my pathetic uh, attempt at a segue into what's happening around the city of Chicago right now with a baseball team that <laughs> apparently has risen from the dead. What is the mood right now as the Cubs get set for Game 7 of the World Series there? Oh, uh, well, the usual mix of fear, terror, excitement, and joy that, that accompanies a Game 7 in any sport, let alone in the World Series when you haven't won in 108 years. Uh, it's it's been uh, it's been an interesting few weeks around the city. Where do you sit on that continuum of fear and all the other adjectives you mentioned? Oh, I'm just hoping for a good game. I'm a Mets fan, so I'm uh, I'm long gone <laughs> at this point. So, and you freely admit that? <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. I'm I'm from New York, so I don't I don't pretend otherwise. From from an outsider's perspective, it, it it seems just absolutely insane. I was looking at you know watching the games at Wrigley and the sea of people. You know, out, out on Waveland and Sheffield, is it that crazy? Is it palpable while you're there? It's crazier than you're probably imagining it is. It's, it's, <laughs> it's insane. I mean, people are lined on game days. 
people are lining up to get into bars at 11.30 a.m. just so they have a spot to sit for the game that's eight hours later. Uh, I can only imagine how drunk they are by the time the first pitch is thrown. And then it's a five-hour game on top of that. So uh, it, it's been absolutely insane. I mean, I, I remember when the White Sox won in 2005. It was a really big deal. It had been a hundred, almost 100 years since then, too. I think it was 86 years since they had won a World Series. But the, the, the Cubs have a much larger fan base than the White Sox do. Uh, and uh, it, it, it seems to be... Uh, exponentially even greater than it was even for that. And it was pretty crazy in 2005. There's some ties or at least some, you know, some friendship between the teams. Isn't there a, is, is there sort of a relationship between the Blackhawks and the Cubs? Yeah, the Cubs have been, uh, the, the Hawks have been showing up at a lot of the games on their off nights. Uh, Jonathan Cage, Brent Seabrook, Duncan Keith uh, uh, sang taking out to the ball game. Uh, they're all wearing their Cubs jerseys on their, you know, the flights to, uh, off to, to the road games. Uh, they're kind of getting into it. Brent Seabrook seems to be a real big Cubs fan. Uh, Chris Bursty kind of busted out Dave's uh, pointing out that he was a Sox fan when he was on the Hawks, so uh, we'll see how that plays out. But uh, but no, these guys, you know, the, the Cubs support the Hawks, the Hawks support the Cubs, the Bulls, all these teams, you know, the athletes tend to show up at, at everyone else's games when it, when it really comes down to it, and it's kind of cool to see that. All right, well, the, the real reason we wanted you on this morning, of course, was to talk about the Blackhawks, and their penalty-killing youth has clearly dominated headlines for the first couple weeks of the season. <laughs> But when I woke up this morning, something else really struck me. When I looked at the goal scoring and points leaders in the NHL, uh, an unfamiliar name sat at the top, Artem Anisimov. What is going on there? What has been the key to his early success? Oh, you didn't predict Artem Anisimov would be the league in goals and points? <laughs> I thought we all did. Close. <laughs> well, it's funny because, I mean, he was, you know, the center of that great line last year. His left wing won the Calder Trophy, Artemi Panarin, and his right wing won the scoring title in the MVP, Patrick Kane, while he was kind of quietly going about doing his business. And every time he talked to Kane or Panarin, they would say, hey, don't sleep on Anisimov. We can't do any of this without him. And now it's interesting to see him getting all the uh, kind of the accolades and getting the, getting the goals. He's going hard to the net. Uh, he, he's making nice plays. He's, he's, he started out well last year, too. He had like 11 goals in his first 26 games last year, and then he kind of cooled off. But I don't think anybody saw this coming. I, I, I imagine it's not sustainable. But anytime the Hawks get offense from someone other than Taves, Kane, Hosa, or Panarin, it's a huge lift for this team because they've been so top-heavy the last couple of years. Yeah, I mean, Mark, obviously he's, we don't expect Artem Anisimov to put up 56, 60 goals or whatever he's on pace for right now. But he, it's, it's not like he's a 40-year-old player. He's still in his 20s. He was, he was a guy with a lot of upside when he was originally drafted by New York. And, and just based on his, his line mates and his teammates, and what is realistic to expect from him going forward? Well, he had 20 goals last year. I think 20, 25 goals is, 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 is a, a good bar for him to reach. I think he had 18 was his maximum with the Rangers. I think that 25 is kind of a realistic goal for him to set. Um, he, he's a good player, but his, his job has never been to score the goals. I mean, even on the, 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 new, the latest incarnation of this line, now he's playing with Marion Hossa instead of Patrick Kane. He's still not the guy who's supposed to score goals on that line, so he gets assists by being around there, and sometimes those guys bang pucks off of him when he crashes the net. But his job isn't to be the goal scorer. I don't think he's looking to score 40 goals. Uh, whether he could or not is, is a different question, but I don't think he's looking to. And if he's doing everything right, he's the one kind of hanging back and, and playing smart, responsible defense so that his super-talented wingers can go and do their thing. Mark, when they acquired him, when, when the cap or maybe Brandon Saad forced their hand in this deal, uh, I think Stan Bowman at the time said that they had had their eyes on him for a while you know, there had been a lot of talk about them trying to lock up that second-line center position, maybe a weakness in years past. Uh, I'm curious, first of all, how real that was in, in your mind and, and how much that has changed the complexion of this team to have a guy like that behind Jonathan Taves. Well, it's huge. I mean, uh, Patrick came, uh, my first year on this beat was the lockout season, 2013. 
And in his first three, in those first three seasons, Patrick Kane played with I think, 15 different centers. It's insane. Yeah. I mean, the amount of line mates he went through over those courts, and, and he was still putting up great numbers. Meanwhile, you had Taves and Hosa were locked in together with either Sharp or Sod on the left wing. He had that kind of consistency that every athlete craves. Uh, and Kane, you know, to his credit, always said, you know what, I like, the, you know, it doesn't matter. I can play with anybody. It's okay. But he always wanted to have some kind of consistency there. And then he finally got it. Um, Last year, and he came up. I mean, they they signed him to a contract extension immediately before he played a game for the Hawks, and a big one too. He's making about four and a half million dollars, which is a lot for a cap strapped team. That's how badly they needed a second line center. Now they've got him, and uh, you know whether he's going to be able to make that four point five cap hit worth it or not is still up in the air. But so far, so good. And, and whether Kane's playing with Taze or Anisimov, now you got a good one-two punch down the middle where they didn't have that. When you look at the teams that have won the Cup in recent years, they've had that strength down the middle, and now the Hawks can kind of have some of that. All right, so I have to ask you about the penalty kill, which is at an absurdly low 58%, and obviously it's not going to stay like that over the course of the season. But the angle I will take on it is based on the players you just rattled off and the offense they have, even with that penalty kill struggling, they've won four of their last five games. I mean, what happens when that number comes up? Well, yeah, they've actually killed nine in a row, too, so it seems to be uh, coming around. I think it was, they gave up 14 goals in the first 26 power plays, which is just, it, it was so staggeringly bad, it almost had to be a fluke. Like, no team in the history of hockey has ever been even remotely close to that bad, so you knew it had to be kind of fluky, and I think we're starting to see that a little bit. But uh, the PK is huge. I mean, yeah, everyone talks about the Hawks and, and, and all the, uh, the offensive talent they have, but really they win on goaltending, defense, and penalty killing. That's how they've won all their cups in 2013, 2015, and even back to 2010. It's with fourth lines that can play 15 minutes a night against good players. It's with uh, Corey Crawford being, you know, rock solid as always. And it's with a penalty kill in 2013 and 2015 when they won the cup. They had a penalty kill that was flirting with 90% most of the year. If you have a really good penalty kill, it can mask all the other problems you might have out there. And uh, it, it's weird to see this kind of bizarro Blackhawks now where everything else is masking the terrible power uh, penalty kill. Uh, but I think you'll see that number. It has to come up. I mean, it can't stay that bad forever. Did they ever pinpoint some of the reasons behind it? Were there any thoughts as to what was going on there? Well, I mean, it, it, Andrew Desjardins played more shorthanded minutes than any forward in the team last year, and he's been out since the preseason finale. That's probably played a role. But Andrew Desjardins, yeah, I like the guy, but come on, he's not that big of a difference maker that he's going to go from 40% to 90%. Uh, it, it's weird. You, you always hear these guys talk about confidence and and, and you don't expect pro athletes to have confidence issues, especially proven championship-caliber teams like this one. But it seems to get in their head. Like, they give up a couple right away, and then they start thinking too much, and they're not just diving in front of shots. Their, their reaction time is a split second behind. They're not getting sticks in the lanes. They're not pressuring the point quite as much because they're worried. And it kind of snowballs from there. And now they kept saying, we just need to kill five or ten in a row, and we'll start feeling better about it. Well, now they've killed nine in a row, and we'll see if they start feeling better about it. Mark, we, we talked a lot when we were kind of previewing the Blackhawks in the preseason about the fact that they are going to rely on some young forwards uh, this year, maybe more so than in years past, or at least more so than you would expect from a Stanley Cup contender. But how have guys like Tyler Mott and Nick Schmaltz looked early on this season? Well, they got six rookies in the lineup if you count Michael Kempney, the 25-year-old uh, defenseman. So it, it's certainly by far the, the, the least experienced team they've had in, in, in their kind of modern era. Um, and so far, so good. I mean, Mott's, Mott looks like the best of the bunch right now but from the forwards. Uh, he had a phenomenal goal uh, last night against Calgary, uh, a great power move, and he kicked the puck to his stick, and he just, he just made uh, lunch meat out of T.J. Brody. Uh, he's, he's, a good play, he's a good two-way guy. He can kind of play all ends. He can play on the top line. He can play on the third line. He can kill penalties. He's been the standout so far. 
Uh, Schmaltz, it's hard for him. He's coming straight from college. He didn't play a single game in the AHL. That's a hard jump to make unless you're like a megastar like a Patrick Kane or a Connor McDavid. And uh, there's, you're seeing some growing pains, but the skill is clearly there. He's starting to feel a little more comfortable, a little more patient. You seem jittery with the puck the first few games, like you would get it and just get rid of it right away. He's starting to realize he has more time and space than he thinks out there. Uh, Ryan Hartman and Vinny Henestros, they've been around for a while now. They're, you know, kind of good role players that can kind of, uh, you know, Hartman plays a scrappy game. They, everyone likes him since Andrew Shaw. Uh, Henestros is blindingly fast, needs to work on his hands a little bit. Uh, but there's some promise there. And Gustav Forsling, the 20-year-old defenseman, Joel Quenville's in love with him already. He's playing every game uh, when he's healthy. He's playing major minutes. Uh, he's got him on the power play. Um, so there's a lot of there's a, there's a high ceiling for all these guys. But when you have six rookies out there, you know there's going to be some growing pains. I think that's what you've seen early on. Where do they find these guys? Because the Blackhawks never pick towards the top of the first round. In some years, they don't even pick at all in the first round. Well, you got a lot of them, guys like Panarin and, and Kempney and Dennis Rasmussen and Eric Gustafson. They they find you know in Europe uh, undrafted guys or guys that have uh, gone, kind of gone back into the free agency pool. Uh, you need to get a lot when you have so much money tied up in just a handful of guys. You need to find a lot of cheap Europeans to come over, uh, and they've drafted well. I mean, not all of them have panned out, obviously, but you know the Hartman was a late first round pick. Uh, Henestrosa was a, was like a sixth round pick. Um, they've been able to lure the college free agents like Mott and Schmaltz. Uh, although they're drafted, but I mean, you mean guys like Kyle Bond and, uh, you know, Trevor Van Riemsdyk, they've been able to kind of convince, uh, players, look, we have so much turnover every summer because of our salary cap issues that, yeah, we're one of the best teams in the league, but we're also one of the easiest lineups to crack if you have the skill. So that's been kind of their selling point, and it's working in Europe, it's working out of the college ranks, and they're hitting just enough on second, third, fourth, fifth round picks to, uh, to fill the holes. Mark, but the depth question. isn't there right now. The depth in Rockford now in the AHL, it's, there's almost nobody left NHL ready, so that's the big difference now. Is they don't have much depth on the uh, up front. They have a lot of defensive depth, but not a lot of forward depth. Mark, uh, last question for you. With with those young players we just talked about, particularly up front, uh, but uh, obviously those young young guys on the back end will, will matter too. Is this the biggest variable for this team this season on whether they can remain a Stanley Cup contender? And what do you see down the road? I, I absolutely. I mean, you know. You think back on that 2013 team, that lockout team that won the President's Trophy that started out 21-0-3 and then won the Cup. Their fourth line that year was Michael Froelich, Dave Boland, and Marcus Kruger. That's a second line on some teams. I mean, that line was phenomenal, and that was their fourth line. It's that depth that has always separated the Hawks. And in 2014 and last year, they didn't quite have that depth. They were top-heavy, and they were playing. They were leaning too heavily on Patrick Kane and, and Jonathan Taves and Marion Hossa, and it didn't work out. So these guys need to come through. They need to be able to, to, to fill those holes on the bottom six and become viable players in the NHL that can play major minutes against good competition. And if they don't, the Hawks are going to have to make a whole lot of moves over the next you know four months or whatever until the trade deadline. And you know Stan, Stan Bowman's willing to do that. He's always willing to make a splash at the deadline. So these kids need to step up and they need to do it quickly if the Hawks are going to have that kind of four-line rotation that's always separated them. Mark Lazarus, the Blackhawks beat writer for the Chicago Sun-Times. Mark, I know you're probably pretty busy today, so thank you so much for the time, and enjoy whatever happens tonight in that baseball uh, with the baseball team in your town. I'm open for extra innings. More agony, the better. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot, Mark. Thanks. All right, so good stuff there from, uh, from Mark. Uh, Craig, I mean, obviously you're more of an authority on the, the Blackhawks here. And we did this last week. We went through the Pacific Division. We just kind of took a look at what each team can fix going forward. It's still very early in the season. We're going to do the Central this week, having talked to, to Mark there. it's He said some stuff that stands out, particularly, you've been saying this for a while now, just the depth 
that was there when they won their first couple cups isn't there anymore. But I mean, the counterpoint is they're still winning games and they won a cup two years ago. But they are they are relying on a lot of young players. How much longer can they keep this up? Well, that's I'm sure they're asking the same questions right now. And it, to me, that's the biggest issue facing this team moving forward. You know, can they can they integrate? this youth and speed like they need to actually they, they need to start doing this a little bit getting some youth injected into that lineup can those guys get up to NHL speed produce and fit into the system and still keep them a cup contender or is Stan Bowman going to have to go out again at the trade deadline and make another move and I have no idea what the heck he trades anymore because their their AHL system right now just doesn't have the prospects that it, that it once had because they've made so many of these deals so that's something really to watch going forward. Yet here they are; they're they're tied for first place in the Central Division. So, you, I guess you have a little faith in what the Blackhawks are doing. They they just seem to maintain, and it all starts with that great core of players: Patrick Kane, Jonathan Taves, Duncan Keith. We can keep naming them. Even aging Marion Hosa. There are a lot of key pieces still in place there to keep this team in contention. If these other guys can, you know, provide the lift and the depth that they need. That sounds like a movie, Aging Marion Hosa, and Liam Neeson would definitely star in it. <laughs> so, what I, mean, I compared him to what I was, you know, the, with, with the, the movies that he's making about his daughter being kidnapped. Yes. At some point, you know, after you make the third movie, you have to ask, is he just a bad parent? <laughs> She's gone again. <laughs> Taken 14. The other thing that, to me, that jumps out, of course, it jumps out to everyone, is the Chicago Blackhawks penalty killing unit, which Mark mentioned has killed off nine straight power plays now, so... Maybe that's just to move up to fifty eight percent to fifty yes to improve to fifty eight percent, which is still just a, a tire fire of a penalty killing unit. You expect them to you know rise a little bit more. You can't be this historically bad, not with the personnel they have, but that is obviously something to watch going forward. As I have mentioned a hundred times, and Mark just mentioned on the show, in the Blackhawks Cup years, their penalty killing unit was elite. It was at least top ten, usually top five in the league. It can't be where it is right now if they hope to contend for a cup. No, that, that's a great point. They're winning games despite having a penalty kill that is, is 30th, and it's 13 percentage points behind 29th. Everybody else is between, you know, the bad teams are in the 70s, right. then you have the middle teams in the 80s, a couple teams are really good in the 90s, but the Blackhawks are at 58. They are still winning games, though. I figure that, that number obviously is going to go up, and, and as I've said in the past on the show, it doesn't have to be an elite penalty kill. But you and Mark obviously watch this team closer than I do. You make a good point. When they've won the cup, their penalty kill has been not just okay, it's been good. All right, we got to motor through some of these because we got a, a morning or a practice to get to. On the other end of the penalty kill spectrum, the Minnesota Wild, killing off penalties at a 96.3% rate, which is absurd. It's almost twice as effective as the Blackhawks. This team has looked good. You and I were talking before we recorded. This is a club that doesn't score a lot of goals traditionally. They're fifth in the NHL in goals per game. Which is crazy. That's, is, that, is Bruce Boudreau having that impact already that he always has on franchises? I think that he is, honestly. When, when, we, when we discussed who's going to miss the playoffs in the Central, Minnesota at, at first glance seemed like, okay, that's probably the team. You're in the conversation, yes. Yeah, but, but my, my instant thought, and I wrote about this last week for today's Slapshot, is... Boudreau gets to the playoffs mm-hmm. every single year. He's done mm-hmm. it eight of the nine years he's been a head coach in the NHL. Minnesota is is extremely balanced on offense right now. They've had pieces that should score goals that weren't scoring in the past. Charlie Coyle is off to a great start, they, and he's just one of them. So I don't think they're going to finish fifth in goals per game, but I think they're going to score because Bruce Boudreau's teams do and uh, I, I think they're a playoff team because that's what Bruce Boudreau's teams do. I don't know what they're going to do in the playoffs, 
for what they need to do going forward, Devin Dubnik just needs to keep pitching a shutout every single night because that's what he's been doing. <laughs> Speaking of goaltending, let's talk about the Dallas Stars. The, okay. the ever-present issue, of course, with the Dallas Stars is, is their poor goaltending, and it, it really hasn't been any better this year. It's, no. they're, they're really struggling back there. And you, you have to wonder, we've talked about this many times, are they going to make a deal? Can they make a deal? Can they move one of those guys to improve their goaltending at some point? I don't know. That's, that's, that's certainly a storyline that you have to pay attention to if the Dallas Stars are going to be a cup contender with all that offensive firepower. But the other thing that they need to do here is they just need to get healthy. It's just ridiculous how decimated Dallas is right now. Alex Hemsky out five to six months with a hip injury. Don't you, shouldn't you just say, yeah, he's out for the season at that point? Five yeah. to six months sounds like the season to me. That's, that's a while. Patrick Sharp still having concussion-like syndrome, uh, symptoms. Cody Eakin still a couple weeks away with a knee injury. Jamie Benn. We don't know what he's dealing with. Maybe hit, maybe a groin, but he's he's been dealing with an unspecified leg ailment that that has limited him. They're having a lot of issues right now with injuries, and it's not helping them get off to the start they envisioned. No, it's um, you know, that Central Division is it's still the toughest in hockey, and never in a million years when we were trying to figure out who would miss the playoffs would I have said Dallas, but and I don't think they're going to. It's still early. But injuries in that division can derail you. They can they can just end your season because nobody's ever slowing down in that division. So if you if you fall behind the pack a little bit for a week or two because all your best players are out, good luck making that up. You know, LA, if LA was in the central, I would say they're done because LA's not <laughs> you can't get off to a terrible start and have issues. You've always got to be at the top of your game. So that transitions into Winnipeg, I think, real quickly. We've already we've already touched on it. They're wasting time with this Jacob Truba thing, whether it's their fault or it's Jacob Truba's fault. Dallas knows they're getting their players back at some point. We don't know. And Jacob mm-hmm. Truba isn't the whole team. I don't want to oversell it, but he's a piece. And critical right, piece. A very critical piece. And right now they are 4-6 and six as we record this. And I would make the case that they're getting all they could ever hope for from Mark Shifley and Patrick Laine already. And they're still 4-6, and six, which is sixth in the Central. So <laughs> how do you get better and move up in the division, you need all your players. Yeah, you need an elite defenseman. In this division, of all divisions, you can't have an elite player sitting out. You're going to fall behind the pace, as you mentioned just a little while ago. Winnipeg is not a team that you know can afford to be without one of these players for very long. They, they've been a team trying to get into the conversation for, for most of the last several years. They had the one arguably good well they, they played well in the playoffs they still went out to add yeah. it was a great series but, swept, but, yeah. but they're not there yet and you can't afford to have such a critical piece out of your life that's the other thing with Truba we're, it's not like we're saying you need to get him in there because this is your year to win it all no but you'd like to be in contention for a playoff spot and Truba's supposed to be your defenseman for the next mm-hmm. 12 years really <laughs> so I don't know it's like it's like they're bluffing and they're playing poker and they're bluffing with with no cards and another great segue. Ooh. Speaking about defensemen, Look at that. a team with an embarrassment of riches on the right side, the St. Louis Blues, with Alex Petrangelo, Kevin Shattenkirk, and Colton Pareko. Right now, we're still expecting Shattenkirk to get dealt at some point, right? I assume that's going to happen because there's no conceivable way he's back next year. St. Louis got off to a great start, with, you know, even with the losses they had in the offseason. Brian Elliott going to Calgary, Troy Brower heading out there, and, and uh, obviously they, they lost David Mack as their captain to Boston. They got off to a great start, and, and they were playing faster, more skilled. We thought, hey, maybe, maybe this is the new wave of the St. Louis Blues. And here they are now, 28th in the league in goals for per game, 2.2 goals per game. A little bit perplexing to me with the style they're playing. Vladimir Tarasenko's off to a pretty good start. Paul Stastny is as well, but 
this is a team that isn't getting much secondary scoring right now. So as a result, they're not they're not scoring much in games, and that's critical. Obviously, they're in this division too. When you have so many skilled teams, they're struggling right now. And I don't know if this is a a small sample size, but it's something to watch. It's it's been an issue that's bitten the Blues in the past, and I think maybe they thought they had solved it a little bit with some of the moves they made. They haven't so far. No, and, and it is crazy as we talk about teams in this division. We can we can sort of use as a precursor to every sentence in this division. It, you know, when we talk about the Atlantic, we're not going to be demanding teams are perfect. When we talked about the Pacific last week, we weren't saying, "Oh, this team has to be perfect." But uh, yeah, <laughs> you can't slip up. And St. Louis was a team that a lot of people thought might be a candidate to, to drop off in this division with the changes they had. So I still think they'll be fine. They still have Vladimir Tarasenko, but but I think that. Uh, yeah, I mean, you do have to get that, that fixed in a hurry. Oh, look who just showed up to work. Oh, Jamie's Jamie Eisner with like two minutes left in the podcast. Hi, everybody. <laughs> it's, it's just good to hear from Jamie. He is here. That's all we're getting, apparently. Yes, it was, it's good to see you, Jamie. So. I don't believe that for a second. Jamie um, will be doing the editing, actually, later, so we, we should credit him with that. Because yeah, this, oof, wait, wait till he hears the show. There's going to be a lot of editing. Yeah, and we also really set the bar high for you next week, so just get ready to... I really do feel like we have chemistry, just the two of us, though. No, I, yeah, I, I think we've, we've captured lightning in a bottle here. That's, that's true. Um, Jamie's leaving again. Yeah, okay. well, no. <laughs> Jamie's appearance at work today. <laughs> Jamie can take a hint. After we talk about how great we sound without him, he just disappears. <laughs> Colorado? Yours. Um, maybe coming back to the pack a little bit. Coming back to Earth, I should say, not to the pack. Cause <laughs> to Earth for Colorado is behind the pack in that division. But... I think it is worth pointing out, and I know Jared Bednar has been a little frustrated with his team lately. They've dropped three of of their last four. They are still actually a young team, and I do think coming back to earth for them is a higher baseline than it was when when Patrick Waugh was the coach there. I don't want to pin it all on on Waugh, but they they were definitely not progressing with him the last year or two. So assuming – Bednar's as good as they seem to think he is, I, I still think this team takes a step forward this year. That just might not be a playoff team. Yeah. I, in that in, division. In, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> with, with the exact same qualifier <laughs> in this division is going to be really hard. I, I, I thought as well as you did and Jamie did as well that Patrick Waugh being out of out from behind the bench would probably be a benefit to Colorado. I, I still think it is and, and has been, but it's such tough sledding in this division. Um, Talk about the last team in this division, uh, the Nashville Predators, who a lot of people, they were a trendy pick to win this division, maybe get to the cup final, scuffling a little bit right now. And, and the biggest issue I see with them is, you know, when we had uh, their beat writer on, Adam Bingett from the Tennessean earlier this summer, we asked him if, if there was any reason to believe that Pecorine would not return to elite goalie form. And, and he really thought he would, but thus far, Pecorine hasn't been that guy. No. No, not at all. As a matter of fact, he's he's 24th in the league in save percentage right now, not performing like the guy that they need. They're, look, there are good pieces here. This is a very good blue line. They added PK Subban. I don't think he's been a problem. I know some people are going to throw that out. Oh, Shea Weber, they won the trade. Actually, Montreal won the trade. Yeah. I'm sure, that's the narrative north of the border. Yeah, well, it is. PK Subban's been pretty good, actually. Yeah. And they they have some pieces up front. Yeah, you know, they 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 add uh, Ryan Johansson. They've got Philip Forsberg. They've got some nice pieces up front. James Neal. James, yeah, yeah, you like mentioning him, don't you? <laughs> He's a pretty good goal scorer. Yes, he is. So some some good pieces up front, but this team needs elite goaltending. A lot of teams need good goaltending. I think this team needs elite goaltending to get into that conversation. They're not getting it from Pecorine right now, and they haven't been getting it in a while, which makes you wonder 
where he is in his career. Yeah, this one's the, the surprise to me. I'll also just point out they're 29th in, in penalty killing, which is still substantially ahead of the Blackhawks, who are 30th. But, you know, Chicago has the pieces to overcome that. I'm not sure Nashville can overcome. And you can make an argument some of that PK has been, I mean, coaches will always say our, your best penalty killer has to be your goalie. And, yeah. and it, you know, some of it's on the team, but some of it's been on Renick. It, it has been. The, the PK is on Pekka. See that? Wow. You can't spell Pekka without a lot of P's and K's. He, um, he, he has not been the goalie that he was truly elite a few years ago. Now he's just, it seems like he's just sort of there. And I, this, the reason this team surprises me so much is I, I understand people saying, hey, that's a dark horse to go to the Stanley Cup. That wasn't necessarily me. But if you were looking for a dark horse to win this division, that would have been me picking Nashville because. I think when Chicago gets to the playoffs, they turn it up. And there are other teams in this division that are maybe trending that way as well. I think Nashville could be a great regular season team and win a playoff series or two, but they're not they're not a great regular season team right now. Yeah, I think part of the, the reason people were picking them was when you look at what's happening with the other teams. St. Yeah. Louis, as we just talked about, lost a lot of key players. So they're still sort of transitioning to this new style that they want to play. The Blackhawks, I mean, they're introducing, we, we just heard from Mark Lazarus, all these rookies into the lineup. That's going to take some time for them to find their way. Joel, Joel Quenville's still tinkering with his lineup to figure out the best mix. And then Dallas, you know, with the, the aforementioned issues, you know, with goaltending and, and changes on their blue line, you figured all of that was going to take a little time to work in. Nashville was, was pretty stable other than the addition of P.K. Subban. So you thought there was a real opportunity for them to jump out to an early lead, and it, it hasn't worked out that way so far. Yeah, Nashville's built to win now. Uh, another team that is built to win now is the L.A. Kings. So let's talk to Lisa Dillman of the L.A. Times to get some insight on what's going on in Southern California. All right, joining us now to talk about the L.A. Kings is Lisa Dillman of the L.A. Times. Lisa, uh, thanks. thank you so much for uh, for joining us today. And <laughs> L.A. And, and Anaheim gave us, I guess that's that's always a pretty bitter rivalry, but they gave us a pretty entertaining game uh, last night, what's what's the feeling around that team right now? Well, they did, and uh, availability is coming up here in a few minutes from over in El Segundo. And, um, you know, it's funny how there's certain games that loom larger than others and have more meaning. It's like the season opener always takes on so much more significance. If a, if a team wins it, there's this great buzz and feeling. And, and the same holds for Kings-Ducks games. I mean, Ducks fans are, you know, crowing and, and delighting and, 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 you know, adding to the Kings' misery. And, and you know, Kings fans are, are, you know, judging from the emails all of us writers have received this morning, they're, they're in a state of panic. <laughs> so, so, I mean, if this was a, a regular season game against Buffalo and they were shut out, you know, I don't think the, um, the angst and the anger would, would be as um, pronounced. All right. Couple of questions for you. We'll get to Jonathan quick and the impact that has had on this team in just a moment. But three straight games now, the Kings have been shut out. What is going on there? What's at play? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's when you have to type look up records from 1969 when I was you know, in, in preschool, or you know, that says something. Um, you know, yeah, they've always had problems. Even when they've been at their best, they've had problems scoring. And you know, Jonathan Quick, which we who we'll get to in a minute, you know, has been able to keep them in games and give them a shot at winning, even though they weren't scoring. I mean, they're, they're, you know, like a Tyler Toffoli, he has gone, you know, he's gone missing. Jeff Carter, Jeff Carter really hasn't quite been the same player since he was hurt actually in Arizona last year, right after the Christmas break. Um, so yeah, there's, I mean, the leading scorer is, you know, Alec Martinez, and, and <laughs> I don't think anybody could have predicted that. The power play has, has gone south, and and, yeah, I mean, three straight games without a goal. In fact, um, the last goal was Carter in, in regulation. Um, it'll be a week, week, week tomorrow, you know. 
I mean, I'm sorry, he, he scored in overtime. Yeah, so they haven't had a goal in regulation since the national game. We're 10 games into the season. The Kings have four wins. They've all come in overtime or the shootout, though, so they still don't have a regulation win. And, you know, for those of us outside of L.A., we're used to seeing this team as a legitimate top-tier Stanley Cup contender every year. Is this just a, a small sample size, or do you think there's real issues beyond, obviously, the goaltending injury? I think there's real issues. And in fact, you, know, you sort of go down the lineup, and they have a lot of the players that are, are kind of the same guy. Like, the secondary scoring is all, like, big, rugged guys. Jordan Nolan, Kyle Clifford, Dwight King. Uh, you sort of have, I think, too many players that were sort of the same skill set, and, and, and they are, they are, are lacking that top-end skill. And, and, and I think the, we have, what we haven't talked about is Marion Gabrick. Um, you know, I think they were hoping for some, you know, nice chemistry with Andre Kopitar, and you know, he he won't be, you know, he hasn't even started skating again. He could be, you know, weeks away, more than that. I wanted to ask you another. A lot of igniting offense actually comes from the back end in the NHL. We've we've seen that more and more as in, in, in recent years, really in the last five years, that's been the way the league's going. Um, I don't think anybody in their right mind would complain about the absence of Slava Voinov from this lineup. It's well-deserved. But have they ever recovered from that loss on their back end? No, I don't think so. I think and, and the, the, the fixes they tried to make didn't work. You know, the Sakara, you know, deal backfired in a spectacular way. Um, and, and, you know, they have some young kids that haven't quite developed into that spot yet. And, you know, you're, you're right, without Voinov, Different players have had to, you know, fit in different spots, like above probably their abilities at a little bit of a faster pace. So everybody, you know, was pushed up a notch rather than knocked down a notch. But um, I hate to do this to you guys. It looks like they're getting off the ice. And um, I, I can hardly wait to start asking about the Oakland Seals and, and records from 1969. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's we appreciate the time that you gave us, Lisa. Thanks so much. And, uh, yeah, go get some answers about the Oakland well, Seals. Well, well hopefully. Yeah, I love those skates back. You know, the skate boots back in the day. But hopefully, we can do uh, you know talk a little bit longer next time. Sounds good. Perfect. Uh, thanks okay, a lot. Thanks, guys. All right, okay, bye bye. That's Lisa bye-bye. Dillman of the LA Times. Yeah, uh, you know, that's uh, that team is they're interesting. They look like a team from. Well, I mean, they were obviously very successful three years ago, but it almost looks like they're playing a style from thirty years ago now, just with how how quickly the NHL has changed. If you want, Greg, if you want to, if you want to show somebody how quickly the NHL has changed styles over the last couple of years. Show them an Oilers-Kings game. I mean, amen, it's, amen it's to that, right? two different and, sports. And look at the standings in the Pacific Division. The Oilers are on top. The Kings are languishing near the bottom. I think they're just ahead of the Coyotes, so they're in sixth place in this division. Yeah. Now, L.A. has had some lackadaisical regular seasons in the past. We're used to them recovering, but looks I'm not different sure. You know, year. I had a conversation with TSN analyst Ray Ferraro yesterday about the entire division, but when he looked at the Kings, he said it's almost like this team has – a foot in two worlds, yeah. where they're you know they're still trying to be, they, they still have some of those elements that made them such a successful team, and they're still a dangerous team because of that. But it's it's like they don't have enough anymore. They're just there's not enough depth on the blue line. There's some holes springing up up front, and of course Jonathan Quick's injury, which we haven't gotten a chance to talk to Lisa about, but that's had a, a, a massive impact on them because their goaltending has been atrocious. You wonder again. I, I talked about this in the story today, but. Is the Pacific Division doing that turnover maybe a little earlier than we thought, or are we going to see teams like L.A. and Anaheim stabilize a little bit and get back to what we're accustomed to seeing from them? Based on, you're right, based on what we've seen from L.A., I'm not ever just going to write them off, but I will say of, of pretty much all the teams in the NHL, they, to me, are 
the, the prime candidate for if they miss the playoffs, huge changes coming in the offseason, which is crazy to say because you've got I mean, you've got future Hall of Famers, Nanze Kopitar and Drew Doughty. You have them there. So you can rebuild around them, and they may not need to rebuild. They may get going, and Jonathan Quick may come back and save their season. But if they struggle like this all year, you know, some teams miss the playoffs. Okay, we we got to add a piece or two. I think L.A. is going to have to overhaul their, their style of play, which is that's tough to do on the fly. Yeah, with Daryl Sutter at the, at the helm as well. I, yeah. as, I, as I said to you earlier, that's like asking him to be as positive as Jimmy Stewart. Yeah, that's <laughs> just, just not going to happen. I, I have a hard time envisioning that. But you're right. If, if L.A. misses the playoffs, that's two times in the last three years. Cup, you know, the last one was coming off a cup win. Yeah. So it's just crazy. And last year, of course, they lost in the first round. So... After three seasons, yeah, you absolutely have to look at it and say, hey, it's not working anymore. We, we need to think about some massive changes here. Especially just the style they play almost seems outdated, as crazy as that is to sound, because it sounds because they just won a cup. All right, that's going to that's gonna wrap it up for us this week. Uh, Jamie Eisner will be back next week. So for Craig Morgan and Jamie Eisner, wherever he is, I'm Luke Lipinski. Thanks so much for listening to the Natural Hat Trick Podcast.